Hello everyone, here is Alex Cristea, uh, label owner of Dots Music, a label I've been running together with Ludwig Rausch since 2015. And today I'm happy to bring you some old school house vibes in this mix, and I hope you enjoy it. Stay tuned. Hello everyone, it's Thursday, February the 9th, 2023. Wherever you are in the world, I hope you're doing well. Welcome to another episode of the Decisive Podcast Series. I am Roberto Q. Ingram, DJ, producer, podcaster, and the founder of Decisive Podcast Series. The Decisive Series is the show where we meet the innovators, the outsiders, the mavericks, the artists that do their own unique thing. We talk about life, things that inspire us to make the things that we make. And previously on the program, we had African Sciences, Alex Downey, Anthony Sheikh Shakur, Bisti Hida, Daz IQ, Derek Thompson, FBK, Jan Kinchel, John Tejada, K. Alexi Shelby, Kareem Elmore, Miles Atmospheric, Move D, Felipe Petit, Plural, Renee Foster, Miles Surge, Jay Denham, The Late LB Bad, XDB, Zoe Massa, and the Munich exclusive local talent and after taking some time off i am very excited to be back podcasting for this awesome platform to share amazing stories about the world of creativity today we're going to be hearing a wonderful conversation with alex christia dj producer songwriter italian food and wine lover if you would like to support this show head on over to my podcast page at www.podomatic.com forward slash podcast, forward slash decisive podcast series. I do hope you're having a wonderful day. I had a wonderful talk with Italian-born, Barcelona-based DJ and producer Alex Cristia, whom immersed himself into the underground scene and elaborated his specific sound based between techno and driven, groovy minimalistic house music. At the age of 20, he started releasing his own music on various international imprints. Over 100 tracks have been released on various labels such as Moan Records and Great Stuff Recordings. Alex also produced music under the alter ego of Mighty. His music releases have already been played by the most renowned DJs in the world on locations such as Time Warp or Space Ibiza. In 2015, he found his own label, Dots Music, a music platform for artists to expose their music releases on the label's showcases. Don't forget to listen in on Alex's mix. Great, great track listing of some wonderful music. I'm sure you will enjoy it. Head over to the Decisive SoundCloud page tomorrow. That's Friday the 10th at 12 noon and listen in to the music in its entirety without any speaking at all, any interview. So that's it. Let's listen in to our conversation about life and creativity with Alex Christia from Dots Music. Alex, welcome to the Decisive Podcast series, man. Thanks for having me, Roberto. It's a pleasure. I, as we know, uh, I'm interested in DJ culture and I always like to dig down deep into the minds of the artists to, to get an idea, actually to compare different points of views of artists and why they do what they do when a lot of us don't even get enough money to get paid to pay our rent. <laughs> but 
with that said, the passion and love, <laughs> the passion and the love that uh, has to, um, you know, be in the forefront, I guess that is a motivational tool to keep us, keep us going. Um, I want to first, I guess, start off uh, beginning by asking you or have a discussion about how, how and why you started DJing. Why, why is DJing, why was it important for you? Or why is it important for you still? I think before I can start talking about DJing, it all started uh, with the education I got before with the music. So I've been, yeah, uh, I was grown up in a musical family. So my father playing in a band, my aunt, uncle, and, uh, my cousin being in a uh, classical musical environment, mm -hmm. being at, my, at music schools and also playing in orchestra and always, you know, having this big role for me and being my mentors. So yeah, at a pretty early age, I was already in contact with music. I think with seven, I received my first acoustic guitar in Italy. Then with about nine or 10, I picked up piano lessons with a teacher. She'd come like once in a week uh, at home for about one hour. And then I have some homework to do, like uh, some producing some, uh, yeah, trying to be creative, playing some melodies, chords and some songs, whatever. It took like a few years. Then I went back a bit uh, more playing with the guitar. Mostly jazz, blues, rock, and all those things. Jazz, blues, and rock at such an early age, huh? How yeah, early, it was like even 13, 13, something like that, yeah. Okay, when you started playing guitar, it was seven. <laughs> I mean, I got the guitar with seven. Okay. I would say I was not very good at it. I was just like messing around. Yeah, of course, I mean. I would say probably like 12, 13, I would like, a, you know, a typical example turn the radio on, listen to some music, and try to replay that riff, that melody. Mm -hmm. I was doing this like every night. I, it was a really nice anti-stress reliever. It was super fun to do. Mm -hmm. Then picking up, you know, some small tabs where I could read the, you know, some magazines where I could read the tabs and learn some songs and stuff like that. Your experience with the guitar, did you get take lessons with for guitar too or mostly piano? Uh, both of them actually. But mostly piano. Your was okay. I was gonna say, what is your favorite between the two? Oh, uh, hard to compare. They both have like their both strength points. With piano, you could get really in the zone with the focusing. It's like time is uh, endless somehow when you play piano. And with guitar, I felt more like I could replay some of the tracks I really liked at the moment and just mess around and. Also play with amplifiers, with pedals. It was um, yeah, nice to a nice way to be creative and yeah, play a bit out of the box. Mm -hmm. I would say mm -hmm. the guitar uh, was it acoustic or electric or? I started with acoustic and I still have it. My first one, but now it's in Germany. And then I went to uh, an electric guitar with about when I was about 13 years old was a Tencent, horrible guitar, but that's how you gotta learn, right? So I had a very <laughs> shitty amplifier as well, so the music just sounded horrible. But there, so I was always blaming it on the guitar and the amplifier. And then I remember one day we had this great guitarist, Nick Woodland, coming at our, at our place 
I mean, this guy's a huge guitarist. You should check him out. Uh, he was playing like huge concerts. He was also linked to, to, to the Rolling Stones back in the 80s. And he picked up my guitar and he played it so well. Mm -hmm. It sounded like a like a freaking Telecaster. And I was like, okay, well, I should just like be more humble and just uh, get to it. And then, yeah, I think a few years later, when I got a bit better, I got an Ibanez, also electric. Okay, so electric means you got into rock. Yeah, rock, even metal, but mostly rock, yeah. Metal, what kind of metal? Like new metal, like, you know, corn, pretty, driving, right. <laughs> groovy metal, let's call it. Groovy metal. And where, where did you, you, this was Italy? Uh, well, I moved from Italy to Germany when I was about eight years old. Oh, okay. So it was a bit of both, yeah. And where did you pick up the rock influence? Uh, in Germany. When you were studying piano, did they think you were going to end up in the in the concert hall someplace, or, or you uh, shifted directions? Uh, they definitely saw some talent in me. They said I had like a really good ear in picking mm -hmm. up uh, melodies and, uh, and things like that. Mm -hmm. But they knew it's something serious, and you need to really invest a lot of time into that. Yeah. They say at least ten thousand hours before you make it. Um, so they were always very strict and they took it very seriously, obviously. Your aunt is a concert pianist, or? My, so my uncle is playing the oboe and my aunt's playing the viola. Ah, okay. Whoa. So the whole family. <laughs> and and yeah. you drifted away and got into techno uh, and DJing. <laughs> and uh, did, they think you were, did they think you were a little bit crazy for doing that? Uh, they didn't understand at the beginning. They thought it was like they didn't really understand the scene. Probably the music to them was like very repetitive, right? <laughs> Alienated. <laughs> so I actually had to bring them once to my DJ studio room. I played a small set and tried to be as musical as I could, and actually they got it a little bit more. Okay, cool. Yeah. Well, at least they were supportive to come there and you know and uh, kind of dive into it to see where your head was at, huh? Yeah, no, actually, when I just went to play in Naples uh, at uh, New Year's Eve at the Roots Party of Antonio Garcia, and uh, I met again my cousin and uh, uncle, and um, yeah, actually brought, I gave to my cousin a few of my musical contacts. They can collaborate in some uh, yeah big projects, so I was happy to do that. So you did study music at school? At school, yeah, until I was 18, yeah. Mm -hmm. This is an interesting, something interesting I want to know. What was the most important skill that you struggled with, right, but overcame after working so hard to get better? In music or yeah. in general? In music. I think maybe talking about comfort zones and challenging myself when it comes to producing sounds. So I had difficulties in the studio. The thing is, I always wanted to challenge myself in the studio, and I didn't want to repeat a working formula because I felt too safe for me. I wanted to go a little bit, um, yeah, out of my depth and a little bit out of my comfort zone to do something exciting. So I'm talking now about phase 2015, 2017, where I was releasing way too much music. I was getting yeah, many, many label requests. I think I did probably in one year over 30 tracks, maybe like 12 EPs. And it was working out and I was very fast in the studio, but at some point I kind of felt it was too much and I needed to challenge myself. It was becoming too monotonous, you know? To have always the labels tell you what the arrangement, what the breaks should sound like, what I should put. When I started creating this new alias, uh, Mighty it's called, and also I created this new alias because I didn't want to put promoters in an uh, uncomfortable um, 
as a place to put me on a stage. Because, you know, imagine as a music artist, you start producing, you don't have a straight career path. Right. So you start releasing a bit of everything you like. Mm -hmm. It's going to be difficult for a promoter to put you on a stage. Right? Because they don't know really where to put you in a warm-up slot, closing slot, whatever it is. So that was definitely, I think, was quite difficult at the beginning to combine the music production, the studio time, with the music business and the strategy plan for my career, you know, to see what makes sense. This is something I definitely struggled um, a while ago, and now I think I, yeah, I got better at it, I would say. I know more how to handle it. Were you satisfied with the with the rewards? Uh, or are you... Um, yeah, I would say some, I would usually play some uh, showcases with the labels. So basically release for them on IP and then going to play around where it's at E-Festival or at Sonar or whatever it is. So it, it definitely had some rewards. But then I also want to join myself in the studio and the creative process of making music. I didn't just want to put it out because I had the name and had the labels chasing for me. I also wanted to slow down and take my time to produce something which is right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's sometimes hard to you know pull the handbrake and also decide what's the right thing to do because you're not getting mentored by anyone usually. So it's all done by gut feeling and instinct but you might be doing the wrong thing. So it takes a bit of time to jump out of your comfort zone and think of these things and, you know, basically plan your strategy for the next few years as a artist and how to bring the music out. Did you have management say, hey, look, we understand you? Or did you have a person in management or someone that said, hey, look, you know, you're releasing too much. Hey. I wish I had. I oh, wish yeah. I had earlier. Uh, yeah, I didn't. It was I just had to figure out everything, uh, yeah, alone. That's a very sad thing to go through when you when you're doing something so well and then no one or someone that's in a in the in the field and in the industry doesn't say hey look you need some some guidance and some management let me yeah there's lacking a bit of data around this you know all you, all you can do is maybe talk to artists related artists and see how to do it that's where you can fetch some data and think about how to do it for your own but it, this is something where the industry is not really you know very transparent and that's where now yeah, we could be talking about Bridge 48, which is a nice creative hub for creative people in Barcelona, where yeah, you can talk about these things, right? About mentorships, career management, to do's, what not to do, and things like that. Which yeah, is definitely very helpful. Fantastic. I want to get into that one a little bit later. That I really want to know how that influenced you. But before we go there, who influenced you um, early on in the terms of getting into DJ. I went to a rave once in Ibiza when I was 18 and been to one every weekend since. After Ibiza, well, I would say uh, I got really hooked by some of these events like concert halls like Amnesia, Space Club and so on, DC10. And that's when I went back home, building my own studio. I really had some pedals and some gear and tried to find my own way. Uh, then I started discovering a bit the local scene, uh, getting my first gig about one year later. And from there on, just trying to, you know, dig as much music as I could, find this whole new subculture of, uh, yeah, electronic music, Disco GS and all these websites. That's how I got hooked. Like this great community behind these concert halls and clubs. This is also an interesting point of view. Do you appreciate a crowd that wants to be musically challenged, but <laughs> they don't understand the music exactly? Or do you enjoy 
playing more to a crowd that's easy to please? I would, I mean, about your first uh, sentence, I, that's why I actually love warm-up sets because it's always a challenging moment where you gotta hook up the people to reset and it takes time and patience and you gotta build it up in an organic way by playing, you know, the records they don't want to listen to, but they like, hopefully. And it's not about giving them what they want, which is probably the second one you mentioned, which would be playing mostly a peak time set and in a festival, let's say, where you mostly have kind of a podcast track list, you know, which is, uh, don't get me wrong, it's not bad, but maybe you're not really challenging yourself, just like a work time get on stage and get out and get back home <laughs> to the hotel, whatever. Uh, I personally prefer, you know, just having a crowd which is open-minded, but still you gotta educate them and catch this relationship going on, you know? That's an interesting approach. Um, I think opening DJs don't get enough respect for um, oh, yeah. creating the vibe for the next artist or next DJ or even headliner. I am now thinking a little bit more about what you just said and how important that situation is. Yeah. Do you get lonely <laughs> when, when, that, when there's like almost a feeling too of playing to yourself? <laughs> or you just know, I know what to expect at this level. I know what to expect and how I'm hoping that they will follow me so that the next artist will be set up. So the vibe of the whole room is created over a certain period of time. I would say being like a psychologist of the dance floor, you need yeah. to take into consideration many, many things. First one being uh, starting by the music, the music management, how you wanna burn that music. I mean, not burn, like play in certain um, sequence. Cause let's be straight and you, you know how it is as a DJ, you never prepare anything beforehand, you might, in my case, I like to, when I play in a peak time set, to select my first song just a few minutes before I'm in, you know, just checking the crowd. So talking of warm-up sets, well, it's uh, about managing your track lists, different genres from jazz, ambient, cinematic music to whatever it is, house, techno, breakbeats, I don't know. Then also comes the, well, the factor with getting the music a bit more louder time by time. Obviously checking the crowd, how it's filling up, how they're filling the bar, how the whole level with the decibels is getting higher and higher in the room. If you're getting tipsy or not, you're getting bored or you just see it in front of the barkeepers. Mm -hmm. I remember in my first war, all that long sets actually, at Cafe Mojos, which was a place in Munich. I do like all night longers. And at the beginning, it was just a barkeeper, you know? And uh, I just look at him, see if he's like nodding and <laughs> moving yeah. his feet. Yeah. That'd be like the first signal, you know? And then, yeah, uh, see, you know, just like to look at people, see how they're talking. If they're feeling bored by some 404 beats, you need to be reacting fast and trying to make something in. So that's why I also like to use three or four decks. I don't like to just play a song, let it play out eight minutes and then fade it out, fade in, fade in the next one. I like to have more versatility, you say, right? More flexibility. Is it a satisfying thing to play a track 
that unexpectedly provides a big moment on the dance floor? It is satisfying for sure. Actually, uh, talking of my own productions, it happened once. That actually Richie Houghton played it in everywhere. And this is probably the only release I never even tested out on my own. And I don't really like your track. I don't know, like, <laughs> just being honest with that's you. That's good, that's good. I kind of knew it had potential as well to release it. Like, my friends, when they heard it, said, man, this is like a festival banger. And I knew it. But I felt, like, I didn't, I had it obviously in my music folders to play it out eventually, but in, I never found, let's say, the right moment to play it. So I never played it so far, even after, like, seven years. <laughs> And he would like play everywhere in big crowds of like 20,000 people and also got a video from it was Space Ibiza where he played it and I could hear a good reaction by the crowd, people screaming and in a good way. That was you know, somehow weird, but can't complain. <laughs> and what was the name of that track? It's called Green Castle. Where did Richie play it? He played first of all at Ibiza at these enter parties in space. Then he played also at Cocoon in UK. There was one, I think, uh, close to Leeds, if I remember correctly. Then he played also in Switzerland. He played it at Time Warp. He played it in a few places, yeah. And uh, was that really satisfying for you? Oh, yeah, that was one of the biggest motivations for sure, to keep on going and to, yeah, just go back in the studio with even more motivation to have a better work ethic, to, to keep on going. Let's, um, let's say you were playing a more extended set and you wanted to switch the tempo. Do you plan for this moment uh, and organize a playlist for such a situation? I do it usually on the night. I usually start with 105 BPM when it's like a really warm up where I know it's gonna take a while till people come. Let's say maybe half an hour, one hour. Then yeah, I start with like 105, 110 BPM. And then once people start coming in, I need to look and have a look and uh, use your instincts. I would probably go a few BPMs up, the more I feel like it's uh, getting more filled and the vibe is getting better and people want more and you're screaming for it. Mm -hmm. Then yeah, I would slowly maybe turn the BPM, maybe half or one up, but yeah, not really playing advance. But I know it's gonna happen for sure, but I don't think about it too much, it just happens. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Let's talk about the label dots and the humble sure. beginnings um, to uh, conceive such a rigorous challenge. <laughs> uh, 13 releases came out in two, uh, January, to, uh, was it 27th? And already mm -hmm. re reached the top um, charts, top of the charts, minimal charts in Beatport. What was the motivation to start the label and who are the key players? To sum it up, so I started this label 2015 with my great buddy Ludwig Krausch. To your question why we or yeah why i thought of creating a label so maybe looking back 2013-14 we were having this residency in harry klein so yeah very famous club in munich and also was playing a lot in that period of time and i was getting many many demos from good friends of mine so it was a time where it was starting to release music and i was yeah building my network with people all around the world sending me demos and then these demos would get played out quite a lot by also big names. At one point I felt like, why don't we just create this label and try to, you know, have like showcase events where we want to give a lot of weight on a certain EP by a certain uh, artist and invite him to play in a really, you know, uh, unique place like Harry Klein. Okay. So it was like combining these two things. 
and also taking advantage of my connections in the music industry, all my, say, releases I had back in the days. So it was a good opportunity also to give back to some of my friends and producers to expose their music in Munich. And that was basically the start of it, yeah. So the key players, the key players is you, Ludwig Rausch, right? Exactly. And what are the roles? What roles do you play and what role does he play in the label? Sure. So as, as for the roles, so I take care mostly of the, uh, of the music catalog, of receiving the demos, and uh, working with the distributor to get it out, also creating the art covers and having the contacts with the artists. And whereas France is uh, involved right now with the Dotscast, so we're having also, yeah, basically podcasts out almost every month. Uh, he's also involved a lot with the bookings and networking. Who, yeah. who ultimately decides um, which artist gets signed, uh, released and who and what are the label's biggest achievements you most proud of? <laughs> the music, because we really have the same music vision. So when something clicks, we know it's made, you know. Four dots. It's exactly, yeah. We talk the same language. And tell me what that description of dots brand image is when you hear that that dot track what elements are you looking for it should be right now groovy percussive energetic we'll also have some uh calling like micro um like quite snappy samples and like when a producer uses uh, let's say some chopped loops just like put in there in some uh, digital workstation and tries to release it I'm a big fan of having these uh, very snappy one-shot samples, giving uh, a lot of swing and groove to the tracks. Um, it might have some vocals, but it should be mostly, you know, truly percussive. Are you primarily uh, digital releases or any vinyl releases? At the moment, we're only digital. However, I was, um, yeah, having a few talks and trying to hopefully get some vinyl uh, pressed out sometime in the future. But so far, yeah, I can't tell you anything about it. It's still in the work. What was your most satisfying release or most successful? I think one, I mean, one which went really, really well was the fourth one by Antonio Garcia. Now it's time. That was a big pleasure to have, a, especially also in Munich when I think you were also there at this Greenfield Festival. Yeah. I think it was 2016, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, yeah, he just played it as an intro of his set for Zvendet. And that was, yeah, pretty epic. And it was still a demo. And I remember planning, so why I'm proud of this release is because I planned it about half a year before. So I read in January, I knew that my good friend, so Antonio Garcia, he had a very good, you know, he was getting played a lot by Jose Capriati. And I knew he was going to play at the festival in July. So I kind of planned this with Antonio. So first of all, I talked with the club, tried to get a gig, a date, let's say, just after the festival which is also not easy, you know, you need to coordinate with the club and get approval. Then get Antonio to make an EP, get it mastered, do the art cover, get it sent to the distributor, try to plan it just on the week of the festival and just hope he plays it. But still, it's a demo. Like, I remember when he played it on a Sunday, the release was on next Monday and we had the party on next Thursday. And I still remember we had actually many, many people from the festival coming to our party, being super stoked about, you know, the project. That was a good timing. It took, yeah, a lot of effort, but it was worth it. B-Port is the distribution, yeah? 
my distributor's labor works, and then they send it to different stores. And um, tell me about <laughs> this amazing new art cover process. We changed a few things in the past few releases. So our beloved Shady Care, he went back to Dubai. Uh, so then I had to think of a new way to create our art covers. And I just thought like, hey, you know what? Let's just buy some of the oldest vintage projectors I can find on the market. The cheapest, uh, dirtiest, you know, and uh, try to work it out a little bit. And then I bought some, you know, some ink, some needles, tried to play with that. And then also had to cut some plastic cardboards and some, yeah, some weird materials to try to get basically some liquids inside it and to project it. So I was really, I'm not skilled with that, but it took definitely some time and it was really fun. So once you have fun in things, you, you know, you keep on developing and working on it. And even though I'm not talented with, what do you say, Boston, like with uh, crafting things. So basically I project uh, the image on a big wall. And then I take a picture with a win with another camera <laughs> while I'm injecting some champagne or some liquids inside the projector and some inks. But it's like very close to the lens. So I got to be careful that it's not going to go into the lens. <laughs> Did you have like two bottles of wine and thought of this or what? <laughs> no, actually, no, I didn't. <laughs> wow. OK. I mean, that's very creative. I mean, and and this is a, a another creative thought process on running a label, right? You don't have an artist. You, you created your own organic label covers, and and uh, you are you happy with the progress or with the results? Oh yeah, I really love it. To be honest, I mean, it took definitely some some tries, tests, and trials, but I really can't wait for the next ones. That's also a big motivation for me, I would say, to get more releases, just so I can test more with the graphic part that now I would say I really, really love. Do you think the, gra you think the mm -hmm. graphic work influences the audience um, interest in the release as well? It's a good balance between so. the two? Okay. I think so. Good. You have a second A-list called, is it Mighty? Mighty, yeah, exactly. Mighty. Okay, what does Mighty mean? For me, it's like a myth, like uh, in, my, in my case, my second alias. So yeah, it was a tricky decision to decide whether I keep on really like, okay, let's start off. So I have been producing hip hop, down tempo beats, cinematic stuff for a while, like over seven, eight years, maybe even 10 years, let's say, but I'm never there to release it. So I had like thousands of projects in Ableton and I would never really arrange it or mix it. Just leave it there. Just like some fun, say, synth sessions. But then, yeah, at one point I thought to myself, like, why not release it? As I said before, at the beginning of the podcast, I was getting bored of repeating myself, having this formula and releasing too much. And that's when I took one step behind, one step back and decided to try to release a few of these to get a whole compilation or long play out. I mean, that's a that's quite a few tracks. It's a cinematic, down-tempo and breakbeats. The project for me, uh, it got, what it, what it was released in 2020 uh, during the pandemic, right? Yeah, exactly, yeah. That was also the time where I thought to myself, like, okay, now it, it's time to release it. 
because I didn't feel like making any club music, especially with the clubs being closed. So to me, it all clicked like, okay, now I need to, it's time to release it, let's put it that It's kind of cool because the full length LP is probably one of my favorite favorites due to the uh, mystic impressions and diversity of the, of the LP. Tell me about the release and the motivation to create such a moving piece of work. I want to prove myself as a producer that I'm not only putting loops together and putting them out on my own label, let's put it that way, but I wanted to have a new challenge, to challenge myself, to see where I can go musically, to have no boundaries, no rules when it comes to music production. Yeah. Without, I mean, having like, you know how it is, having all these long intros, long outros, having all these refills in the break or some effects of white noise and things like that. Mm -hmm. which kind of block you in the studio in the creative process. Yeah. So I just want like, it's like taking a paper and a pen and starting writing down a lyric without having too many rules and being closed down by it, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when producing that music, I felt like I was totally free. I didn't have to think like, okay, it's going to be a three-minute song, six-minute song or 25-minute song. It was just pure music. Indeed, if you look at the EP, I think there's few songs with, which are like only a minute long. So almost like a snippet, a jingle. That was it. I didn't want to have any rules in the creative process. And uh, you use you, you use Ableton and outboards, right? Or just only on board? How do you produce? Uh, both. I use Ableton, then I have some, yeah, other synthesizers. I mean, this, this release is quite uh, a challenger. Uh, and to um, be able to create such a, um, this kind of an epic type of uh, um, approach is also pretty um, charismatic and experimental as well, right? It is for sure experimental. So, you know, kind of hard to find your target audience with something like that, because it's not definitely a club or a festival. It could be even a lobby, it could be a clothing store, it could be anything really, radio eventually, but yeah, that was one of the challenges also in that, how to promote it, how to find your target audience. I don't know which tracks I played, but I think you gave the I think you gave the LP to me just I think a day or two before playing at Blitz, right? At Blitz, yeah, exactly. Because I was playing for I think like eight hours. Uh, at some point, it was um, I introduced it into my set, and I don't know which one it was, but it was probably. Uh, I remember actually, yeah, it was number six, seven, and one more for Giuseppe Franchutteria, and one more I think you play as well. Right, and I was surprised that we yeah. be able to get to it because it's so. Dramatic and hard to mix too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very yeah, hard yeah, to mix. yeah. That's very yeah. short. So. I think you should do more like this. Um, I am actually. So yeah. I'm working on a few new songs. Nothing planned yet for this year, but uh, yeah, I was uh, actually just a few weeks ago working on a few tracks. Mm -hmm. It sounds really. I mean, I really really like it, but I don't want to let's say push it too much because I wanted to release it when it's time. Okay. So here I got no time pressure. It's just myself. So, um, in your own words, um. Tell everyone listening how important the opportunity was for you to attend this musical production workshop at uh, Bridge 48 Studios. How was that for you? How important was that for you? Oh, it was finally something like in my careers to have a creative hub with people from the industry yeah. that really are able to listen to your project, to listen to your music. Uh, that was something which was missing in my 
career before. So in Munich, I felt a little bit lonely when it came to producing. I felt like personally, Munich was trying to copy Berlin. Yeah. And I felt like I had to send my demos outside of Munich to get listened to. But it will be mostly like digital feedback, which is not the same as having somebody in front of you and giving you real poor eye contact uh, feedback. So that was a big difference for me to have great people from the industry to give you tips and mentor you and motivate you to, you know, get better and give you some hints. Is that intimidating for to have someone looking over your shoulder while you're doing and critiquing everything you do? Or did you take it, you take it, you took it as, hey, this is a great learning experience. I'm so excited. It's an opportunity, yes. It's opportunity. an opportunity, exactly. And, and who were those key players, the teachers at this um, workshop? So right now I'm going to David Esquilache's studio, who's, uh, uh, well, one of the most renowned Italian DJs and producers. Also DC10 resident, has countless productions on great labels. I think he was working with Denis Ferrer on a EP, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, yeah, I'm going to his studio, which is a good experience because he's there many times. Also, you know, we're uh, like Bridge 48 has about eight studios uh, owned by some amazing producers. So sometimes they jump in by to say hi, to listen to a few beats. Had some of my some of my legends coming to the studio while I was producing just to say hi. And I was just like in the middle of my jam session, twisting knobs and jumping around. It was like, wow. What's going on here? Yeah. Congrat congratulations. And, and, and how did this all come about? <laughs> it came out quite randomly. So I, w I just sent some demos to... Wait, hold on a second. So Bridge 48 was just um, being created. And they made this uh, contest to send demos to Dubfire, right. who I'd been admiring for ages. Uh, basically going to all of his gigs and being a huge SciTech follower. So I took this opportunity and sent him some demos. And actually with another alias, which is called Bristol Panic. And one day I was in Peru at Machu Picchu and the guys contacted me. They wanted to have a meeting with me on the next day. Fortunately, I couldn't be there because it was a bit, yeah, I was too far away. But then they invited me yeah, to the studios to have a talk. Then they gave me plenty of support. Many, many free hours in the studios, and that was, I felt really, like, really welcome and was a very healthy environment. How did this de opportunity develop? Did you send the demos? Did they contact you? What, what was so I sent the demos through Hello Demo, which is a new, one of, well, relatively new, sorry, it's a new uh, app to send demos to artists. And then they picked, like, Dubfire Ali picked 10 of his favorite, uh, yeah, demo submissions, and then invited me over with a Skype call and then um, gave me some tips in production and then gave me some kind of membership for one year in the studios. One year? One year, yeah. So that opened to me quite some doors in the industry. And then in that year I was able to, you know, get, yeah, just with my network. And now, yeah, just talking of Bridge 48, I'm playing there actually next Friday. So they have uh, plenty of events when every day something different. So I really feel like it's a very creative hub. Like, as I said before, on Fridays, for example, they have this bridge lab where they have this table with like eight synths and keyboards and everything, microphones, and anybody can pick up the Bluetooth headphones and jam and play with the people in front of you. So it could be a kid, but it could be also Guti or, yeah, yeah. I don't know, Richie Houghton yeah. playing in front of you, playing the same thing and listening to the same thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. All these kind of things, very creative, and it's always a pleasure to be there and to get inspired. You were in Munich 
when you had this opportunity. So that means, and it's a year long. So this means that you had to pack up and move for a while. You've been, you had to move around. How did that work? How did, I mean, one year? Are you going back and going back and forth? Yes, I planned the move in 2020, and then I made it happen in 2021 in February. You know, just goodwill, and I was already planning to. It was either gonna be Barcelona, Berlin, and then I picked the sunny side, uh, Barcelona, and yeah. For me, things just clicked. Yeah, the opportunity was a big step logistically and everything, or? Yeah, I mean, I always love Barcelona, and it kind of reminds me of Naples in some aspects, mm -hmm. with the sea and some other aspects too. Mm -hmm. Now, as we come to a close, I want to talk to you about the mix. Now, with that said, mm -hmm. I am interested to know your motivation of the music selection in your DJ mix for the Decisive Podcast series today. Many of those DJs and the label owners and producers <laughs> of this mix are legendary, major front runners like Kenny Dixon Jr., Moody Man, Shea Demir, uh, Ron Trent, Jordan Fields, Theo Parrish, some of my favorites of all times. Tell me the motivation behind this mix. Good question. So since I'm in Barcelona, I would say I'm playing a bit more the houseier side of electronic music compared to when I was back in Munich. Yeah. And then also I had some gigs recently where I was having more of a house crowd. Yeah. One was in Naples at the Roots Party and one was recently in Barcelona where I knew I had to, you know, dig my old uh, house records. And um, yeah, I came up with some old school vibes, jacking house, something I wouldn't necessarily play in all my gigs, but I really had a great time mixing it, especially, you know, digging these records, because some of these are really old from the 90s, 94, 96 and so on. And also to put it together is, you know, then also obviously very fun. I have one more question to ask. What is your favorite Italian dish to cook? <laughs> and what wine is served with this dish? So you know, this is not a, a two-minute question, right? <laughs> I'm gonna ruin all your plans, so I could be talking hours about this. Mm, for me personally, it's a parmigiana or a pizza, but then I feel like neglecting pastas, which is definitely not good. So I'd be like, like running circles between these three. What were you growing up? On. Um, vegetables, grilled vegetables, pasta, and pizzas. I was, you know, burned very close to Napoli. Tell me a little bit about the pizza. What, 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 what cheese goes on the pizza? Fiori di latte. Cool. Uh, with that said, Alex, my man, Alex Christia, thank you so much for uh, the mix for this episode of the Decisive Podcast Series. Thank you for uh, taking the time to, to uh, be patient with me uh, as we tested my new gear i'm happy to have to have uh to use for the the next upcoming podcast thanks for a wonderful conversation about your artistry and i appreciate and hope that the listeners also appreciate what it takes to actually you know to actually succeed or at least get some satisfaction in a, such a cutthroat industry keep the expectations low to keep on having fun find a way to Enjoy yourself. This is really, I think, a key aspect to it. Take yeah. nothing for granted. Mm. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here, man. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. A pleasure. But you always seem to come first before you stop looking stay. You freaky motherfucker. That's what you are to me. You freaky motherfucker.
Hopefully you enjoyed this wonderful mix by Alex Christia for the Decisive Podcast series and the program in its entirety. Please make sure you support the podcast on Podomatic and on Spotify and SoundCloud. We'll also be doing our live stream soon on Mixcloud. Thanks again and see you for the next episode of the Decisive Podcast series with Nutmeg from Cork, Ireland.